How's everybody doing? Isn't it a beautiful morning? For those of you that like sun, I'm sorry. For those of us that don't, man, amen. That's right. Come on. Last night, there's a guy that I've been trying to share Christ with, and so we're sitting outside, and it starts to drizzle. And uh, I was like, man, tonight's going to be a good night. And then I woke up, and it was still kind of that same feeling, and I, ah, I just I love when weather gets that way. So anyways, for those of you that need sun, I'll pray for you. Uh, Here's where we've been at. Like uh, Christian said, we've been in John for a little bit of time here. And uh, I hope it's been something that's challenged you on who Jesus is. That's been my whole goal. Is that the reason that John wrote the book of John is so that people wrote, yeah, the reason that John wrote the book of John, that sounded weird the way I just said that, um, was so that people could accurately see Jesus. That was his goal. He knew at the end of the day that in spite of everything what people believed about Jesus, this guy that had walked with Jesus knew Jesus. The thing he needed everyone to know is is that Jesus wasn't just anybody. He was God in the flesh. He had to be that way. And so he was writing to these people and saying, that's why I'm writing. He says that in 20, 33, 31, which we're going to go into next week. I'm going to kind of skip over those two verses and finish the book of John with that. But he says, I'm writing all these things to you so that you might believe that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God and that by believing, then he says, you might have life in his name. See, your view of Jesus is connected to how your life then, then runs and operates, what he now, how, how you now experience life. And so he's crystal clear about that. And last week, man, I hope you enjoyed Terry, the mouth from the south, man. He just, he brought it. I, a lot of times Sundays, I don't, you know, I'm up here. Last week I sat out, I got I had my arm around my little lady, my wife, and, and just enjoyed being washed over by the word and being absolutely impacted by what John has been trying to say. He brought it into the life of Mary Magdalene. He brought it into the life of these disciples. He brought it into a guy like Thomas, this idea of the grace and truth that comes from Jesus Christ so that these ones that were following him might have life and life abundantly. And so with Mary, he approached her and he approached her exactly how she needed to be approached. And I don't know if you caught it, but at that time, for a woman to be the first one to experience a leader like this at that time in that culture would have been unheard of. But that's what happened. The first person to see Jesus resurrected was this woman that had followed him faithfully. I thought the next one, all the disciples standing around, to be honest with you, that one made me laugh. Every time I read it, I laugh. Because it says the doors are locked and they're scared. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes in and out of nowhere says, peace be with you. And you know those guys are like, hey, dude, Jesus, come on, man. I get you can go through walls, but Thomas, I relate to. I'm a huge skeptic. If anybody knows me, I'm a massive skeptic. I'm a, you have to show me in order to believe it. And so I related to him. But at the end of it, and this is what Terry finished with preaching, is that this is where Thomas ends. After seeing all these things and hearing all these things, all he could say in front of Jesus was, my Lord and my God. That's where Jesus was trying to get him. 
Now, I think he says a very fascinating statement Jesus did in verse 29 that was really good. He just says, look, if you believe because you've seen me, and then he says, blessed are those, that would be all of us who have not seen and yet believe. In other words, a true satisfaction and contentment and authentic happiness is coming to these people that even though they haven't seen me, they believe. And that's what John's trying to write. He's trying to get across to these people this accurate view of Jesus is essential to who we are. And that's why we've been preaching this all the way through. And this is why even we exist as a church. We exist as a church to give every person an accurate picture of God by helping those who believe become these fully devoted followers. That's why we do the grow thing and the live thing and the display thing and the mobilize thing. All of that has to do with this very thing. Now there's a guy that I've been reading about probably over the last three or four weeks named, (coughs) excuse me, Eric Little. I don't know if you remember Eric Little. He was a guy that was made most famous in the book, in the uh, movie Chariots of Fire. Remember that one? Dun, 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 dun. Isn't that the one? Right? And so, but in that, he was the guy that was supposed to, he was slotted to run a certain race, but because of his convictions about running on Sunday, he ran the 400 meters, and in 1924, he became the Olympic gold champion. Now, that's usually where the story ends, but actually, rarely do we hear about his life from 1925 to 45, the rest of his life, is that he joined the London Bible Society and traveled to China and made his life about being a missionary to the Chinese people. Now, in it, he even went so far that when it got to the 40s, obviously, we know what happened. World War II occurred, and there was a huge conflict between the Japanese and the Chinese, And all those that seemed to be sympathetic to them were thrown into internment camps. And so he was one of those that got thrown into an internment camp. While he's in there, in order to encourage the people, he wrote a book that was called The Disciplines of the Christian Life, which on one level you go, oh, it's no big deal, until you read it and understand the circumstances that they were under and how he was trying so badly for these people to understand who Jesus is in the midst of living in an internment camp. And one of the things that he wrote, I want to share with you, he said this to these people. Many of us are missing something in life because we are after the second best. He then clarified what he meant by that. And he said, you will know as much of God and only as much of God as you are willing to put into practice. He really desperately wanted them to understand that this Christian life is not meant to be observed. It's meant to be lived. It's meant to be joined into him. And this is now what you're going to see John doing is he's calling these people now, Jesus is, join into this endeavor with me. Let's go. This is where the most life is. Don't go after second best. Go after the best. Go after what I'm offering you. The problem, however, is, and I think all of us now can kind of come to a point where we understand this, there are certain things that, that, that cause us to disconnect from experiencing what, what this guy was talking about, the first best, not the second best. And one of the things I've found in all of our lives is this idea of failure. Failure's in the midst of all of us, and I'll tell you what, if there's one thing I hate more than probably a lot of things, it is failure. I hate losing I have always been competitive, highly competitive. It doesn't matter what it is. We could make up a game right now, and I would want to beat you. (laughs) As a kid, it was to such extent I would cheat, I would steal, I would lie, I would do whatever it was. Even at one point, my great-grandmother of all people, you would think she would never do this, she kicked me out of her house and made me go back to my grandma's house because I was such a cheater and a liar. 
But I made it my life that, and in fact, that contributed into why I went into sports. I, I made a huge effort to become the athlete that I became. But in the midst of all of it, oftentimes you would work hard, you would do everything you needed to do, but you would still fail. And one of the things I also learned to do was to make excuses. I've even found making excuses has found its way even into my adult life. And sometimes I may not make the excuse, but I think about it. Why? Because we love to cover on our adequacies, don't we? Think about it. When you were a teenager, what did you cover? Zits. Why? You want anybody to see them as if they didn't have zits too. And then you think, oh yeah, those crazy teenagers. Oh yeah. Then we get into adulthood and we cover wrinkles. (laughs) Why? Because we're afraid of people seeing our inadequacies. But it's not just those things. One of the things that I always try to cover, and I usually stand like this because I'm taller than most people, is because I don't want you to see my yarmulke on top of my head. (laughs) When it gets so bad, that's when men start shaving their head, right? Why? To cover inadequacy. We cover our weight. We wear baggier clothes. We do these different things out of this idea that we don't want people to really see our inadequacies. And on some levels, you know, we laugh at it being about a part of the head. But when it comes to now our personal lives and our walk with Jesus, let me tell you something. This can be dangerous and it can be life killing. Dangerous. In fact, there is nothing in life, I believe, in our Christian lives that cause greater mediocrity than when we try to hide our inadequacies and our sin. What happens is, is when we fail, and the idea is, is not in the Bible, if you fail, it's when you fail, because everybody in here, it's not if you are going to fail, it's when you fail, or you've just got out of failure, or you're going to fail. The idea is, is are you going to fail into mediocrity? And the way we tend to fail into mediocrity is, is we don't deal with the issue head on. We hide it, we, we mask it, we try to in some way not deal with it. But you know this, and deep within your gut, all of you know this, I know this, is that when we don't deal with sin, either sin that we've committed or that's been been committed against us, it becomes a dangerous thing. We hide it out of shame. We're afraid of being honest. We don't want to deal with the pain of it. Why? Out of fear, isn't it? I'm afraid if you really knew who I was, it would scare you to death to understand who I am. We fear the consequences. And then what happens is, is the moment that we keep hiding it, we move into this idea then that we begin to, be, to think that we're unusable by God. And so we then just drift into this idea of I'm unworthy to serve Jesus and I just graft myself into mediocrity. In fact, I would venture to guess a lot of you in this room, the reason that you don't serve Jesus to this extent that what he's talking about has to do with you haven't dealt openly with sin that needs to be dealt with. Now, what Jesus is going to do here, and I love this, is he's going to do this for Peter. He's dealt with Mary Magdalene. He's kind of dealt with the disciples. He's dealt with Thomas. And now all of a sudden what you see, what John's doing is, is what about Peter? See, none of the other gospels answer how did Jesus restore Peter. But in this really cool way in John now, we're going to see Jesus come in and he's going to restore Peter in a very, very fascinating way. Now, let me just kind of set the stage for you so we can understand where we're at. In Luke 22, at the very end of Peter now denying Jesus three times, it says the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the roaster crows today, you will deny me three times. And look at this. Peter went out and wept bitterly. 
He was broken. He was devastated by what had taken place, and he was absolutely broken. Now, somewhere in the middle of it, he got his life back together. And where we come in John 21, you can go ahead and open your Bibles there. I'm going to throw it on the screen, but open up your Bibles to John 21 and and follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back you can grab, but I'll I'll throw it up on the screen for those of you that maybe don't have a Bible. But those of you do, man, get into that Bible. I want you to look down into the one that you have. But here's the setting. In Matthew 28.10, Jesus had told these guys, go to Galilee. And so all of them being faithful, they understood they had failed miserably, but they go off and they they go to Galilee. They're there. They're kind of waiting for him. In the middle of all of it, it says, after Jesus revealed himself, himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. Now look at these guys. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. The who's who of Christianity at the beginning. These guys that are going to change the world, Jesus has something in store for them because they won't change the world until they deal with what happened that night. And there they are all sitting around and suddenly Peter says this statement. I love this. I'm going fishing. Now, there's a part of me, if you know anything about me, I love to fly fish. And one of the things I used to do when things were kind of miserable, I'd be looking at my wife, I'm going, I'm going fishing. And that's just how I was. Now, he's not saying I'm bored, so, you know, he's grabbing it out. And he's like, come on, fellas, let's go. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually, what he's saying here is, is he's saying, let's go back to fishing. We failed, guys. We're not worthy to serve Jesus. Yeah, we'll be here and obedient, but we'll kind of drift back into mediocrity because we're not worthy to do what Jesus has called us to. I know he called us to go fish for men, but come on, fellas. Let's go back to fishing. You can almost tell in this the way that they answer. They said to him, well, we'll go with you then. In other words, they're following him back. Okay, yeah, you're right. Let's just go back to fishing. Some people think, no, they were just going to fish for their breakfast. No, you don't take your nets out to fish for 153 fish to go fish for, you know, six of you, seven of you. They were going back. Why? Because they were drifting into mediocrity. They were drifting into what God hadn't called them to do. It says they went out, they got into the boat. But that night, I love this, they caught nothing. See, here's God in heaven. He's like, no, no, I'm going to teach you guys something amazing about restoration. And so they're throwing their nets in, right? And think about fishing all night. Pull up your net. Anything? No. Anything? No. And you know God in heaven is going, you're not going to catch anything until my son gets here. All of a sudden on the shore, we see this. As day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know yet that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children... Do you have any fish? Knowing full well, they hadn't caught a thing. What do they answer? No. I'm fishing all night. And the answer is no. He said to them, okay, then cast your net down on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, I know Thomas at this point went, seriously, bro? The right side? Oh, yeah. Duh. You know what I mean? It's just like. You know, somewhere in there, Thomas was like, and Peter, you know, being the impulsive one, just goes, shut up, give me the net, you know, and they get it over on this other side. So they, they dropped it down there, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So you know, at that point, Thomas is going, gosh, this whole thing keeps killing me, this whole skeptical thing, right? And they're pulling it in. 
The next thing that happens is, is that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And I love Peter, man. You know, John's sitting there. He's like, hey, it's, it's, it's the Lord. Peter doesn't just sit there. It says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He was down in a loincloth. He was basically almost naked. And he threw himself into the sea. Can you just see this? It was a total Forrest Gump moment. Remember Forrest Gump when he's like, Lieutenant Dan's there? You know, it's like, Lieutenant Dan, you know? So in other words, one of the first apostles was Forrest Gump. And so he dives into the water, right? And he's just so excited to see Jesus. Even though he's known that he's failed, he can't wait to go see Jesus. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging in the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So it's just the setting is being set. Jesus is just preparing everything for what it's going to be to restore these guys, specifically to restore Peter. And I love how the setting goes from here. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Total man moment, barbecue. <laughs> right? Here he is, and he's got all the fellas around him, and they walk in, they're like, barbecue. The God of the universe that they failed greatly is preparing in front of them how he's going to walk them through restoration. Even though he's the exalted one, he is still at this moment serving them. In fact, he even says, look, bring some more of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled in his shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said, come on, fellas, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. You know those moments where there's just an elephant in the room and you're just kind of all quiet? They knew there was an elephant in the room. This whole thing of their denial of Jesus, everybody running away, you know, and so I think everybody's afraid to kind of say anything. So they're eating their fish and their bread, kind of not sure what to do. It's just that uneasy moment. But Jesus is just setting the table for restoration. He has plans for these guys. And in order to have these plans, he needs to restore them. He needs to restore Peter. John goes on and it says, Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them. Look at this. He's still serving them. And so with the fish, this is now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Everything, the whole stage is being set. Everything is about these guys' restoration. And I think the key aspect of this and how I believe we're called to experience life is we're called also to do this just like Jesus is called to do this. I love the fact that I just wrote down some thoughts. He didn't walk in at this moment now and go, seriously, Peter, come on, bro. I told you you were going to fail me and still you failed me. Come on. He doesn't come in and say, what happened? He doesn't come and look at him and say, what in the world were you thinking? That's one of my famous ones with my son. What were you thinking? He looks back at me and he says, I am male. I wasn't thinking. <laughs> he didn't come at him and say, do you guys know how much you hurt me that night? That's a classic marriage argument. Bro. How are we going to avoid this from happening again? He didn't do any of that. 
Instead, three times, and you're going to see this in the text where he's going to ask this question instead, do you love me? See, Jesus in Matthew 7 had taught an important principle that where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. He understood that he's not after trying to manipulate Peter. He's not after trying to coerce Peter. He's not after all these other things. He is after one thing. He is after the heart of Peter. He's after the heart of these men because he knows if he gets their heart, he has all of them. He starts first with that. And I love how he comes out and does this. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Look at verse 16. It says the same thing. Simon, son of John. Look at verse 17. Simon, son of John. Why is he doing that? Anytime Jesus would do this, he would oftentimes go back to who they were before they came to know him. In other words, he's saying to him, we need to establish this, Peter. You went back to who you were before, this guy before I called you. It would have gone all the way back into John 1 when suddenly Jesus came in and he changed his name to Peter, the rock, or maybe as we might call it in our culture, yo, Rocky, you know, and that's probably how they would have called him, yo, rock. Peter, you're you're acting like Simon, son of John. I called you to be the rock and you're acting like a pebble. Simon, son of John, Simon, son of John, Simon, son of John. And then he throws out this amazing statement. He says, do you love me more than these? That statement that he's talking about there in verse 15 is, do you love me more than these? He's beckoning back into Matthew 26, in which Jesus told these guys, you guys are going to all flee from me. And in Matthew 26, Jesus, or Peter boldly looks at Jesus and says, they may all walk away from you. Every last one of them might go, but not me. That's called arrogance. He's asking in that question, do you love me more than these guys still love me, Peter? Peter knows what he's going after. The guys know what he's going after. He's going after this pride that was in Peter. He's going after him in this issue of love, and he wants to make sure that we understand something that he is getting after, which is that arrogance does not do in God's kingdom. You told us that you loved me more than all of them, so do you. And if you don't think you've ever done it before, let me tell you something. We all have. I've heard people over and over say, I'll never smoke another cigarette again. Two days later, (sighs) I'll never eat that much again. I'll never spend that much money again. I've had so many guys come into my office and say, man, I will never look at porn again. I'll never yell at my kids again. Man, I, I will, I'll read my Bible every day. I'll pray. I'll go to church more. And at the end of it is that statement that is so arrogant that thinks I can do this. See, what Jesus is after is, is that, that arrogant love won't do. And later on in 1 Peter 5, even Peter has to write this, is he says God opposes the what? The proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this is what Jesus is going after right now, that the love that he has for him must be a humble love. And self-righteous people, they're these people that at the end of it, they're not honest about their sin. In fact, they hide their sin. They're the type of person that never openly deal with their sin. They just say, oh, it's just between me and God. 
And I love what Jesus is doing. He's taking Peter's sin and graciously and lovingly, he's putting it in front of everybody. Not mean-spirited, but he understands that if Peter keeps that sin internally and never brings it to the open, it's going to continue to cripple him and make him fail in the mediocrity. In fact, I would say this. I think we've lost the art of openly owning our sin. We say things like, you know, just deal between you and the Lord. No, the Bible says this idea that we are to confess our sins to one another. Why? So that we might be healed. The Bible's not mean-spirited in trying to somehow get you to look stupid. The Bible understands you already look stupid. Just be honest about it. (laughs) But no, we don't want people to see us that way, do we? And the scary part about that is, is by hiding ourselves from that, we don't see our need for Jesus. And so that's what Jesus is doing for him. He's bringing it to the forefront. And that's why I think in this instance when he responds, you can just tell Peter now, convicted of his pride, looks at Jesus and goes, yes, Lord. You know I love you. That word know is this Greek word oida. It has the idea of factual information. It's like, Jesus, come on. You just raised from the dead. You've walked on water. You turned water into wine. You know all this. Except he shifts the word around. Jesus had asked him, do you love me? And he was talking about this way in which we're to esteem or, or look at most highly. That kind of a love. That we, that we, that's how we honor somebody with that kind of love. But then Peter comes in and he uses this word that was more used of family and friends. Just that, that simple love between people. And Peter looks at Jesus and goes, you, you know, I have this fond affection for you. But Jesus isn't done. I love this. In verse 16 again, he comes back into it and asks the question over again. He says to him again, Simon, son of Barjona, this time he just says, do you love me? See, before it was a comparative love. Do you love me more than these guys? And now what he's getting at is to get rid of all the guys, get rid of all these people. Don't compare yourself to them. Peter, just gut level, you laying on your head in your pillow at night and staring at the ceiling, no one else caring. Do you love me? The core of it, Peter, do you love me? Tell him I said hi. (laughs) I think it's so fascinating in this that he was done with comparisons. He didn't want any of these comparisons to one another. He was now narrowing it down and he was just dealing with that alone moment, just he and the Lord and asking Peter, apart from all this stuff, Peter, do you love me? You can tell from Peter's response again, he just says, yes, Lord. And he does the same exact thing. Are you kidding me, Jesus? You've raised the lame. You've caused the blind to see. The people that couldn't speak, you allowed them to speak. You know all things. You know when I'm just laying there on my head and my pillow at night and no one else cares, it's just you and me. Lord, you know I love you. My affections are for you. Now, in most, like, counseling situations or with most people, we go, okay, good, 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 good. Everything is cool, right? Smooth it out, smooth it out. You okay? You all right? Okay, I'm going to go away now. Not Jesus, man. Jesus is going to get up in his business. 
See, the first two were to find out, do you love me more than these? The second one was like just you and me, Peter. But now Jesus is going to go a third time. Why? That's how many times he had failed Jesus. It was about now restoring Peter. The fire would have been there. It would have been smoldering. The last time we see Peter around a fire is when he denied Jesus to a little schoolgirl. Smells would have just been there. All of a sudden, this third time, Jesus looks at him and says, okay, fine, Peter. And he uses the same word that Peter's been using over and over again. Look up there, except now he's going to shift. Verse 17. He lets him know now, all right, Simon, son of Barjona, do you love me like a brother, like a friend? Are your affections for me? See, Jesus wasn't stopping He was going just to the guts of the matter. Peter, I know you failed. I get it that you failed. I understand that. That's why I'm here today, Peter. That's why I'm doing it in front of everybody. That's why I'm loving you in this way because, Peter, I get you failed. Just so you know, they fail and everyone fails. Peter, that's why I'm here right now. That's why I died on the cross. That's why I've been doing what I've been doing for eternity because I understand humans fail, but God's desire is not just to leave us in our failure, but to restore us. Peter, Are your affections for me? I love Peter's response. He says he was grieved. That word grieved is just this idea that his heart was just broken. Because Jesus had said to him a third time, do you love me? And I love his response. Lord, you know everything. Lord, you were aware of all things. You were aware of that woman back in John 4. You knew what she was thinking, Jesus. You know what all of us have been thinking all along. You are God. You demonstrated when you raised yourself from the grave. Of course, you know everything. But then he chooses another word for know here. He says, you know that I love you. The idea there is not just factual information, but now it's experiential. Jesus, yes, you are God of all gods, but God... You've walked with me, ate with me, talked with me, been with me. You've seen what a bumbling idiot that I am. Jesus, you know my passion is for you. See, I love what Jesus is doing here. At the end of the day, what he's trying to get after is, is that he's not after getting us to do things. He's after our heart and our affections for him because he knows that our actions are intimately connected to our affections. The other thing is that I love about it is he will not let us stay trapped in sin. Isn't that awesome? People stay there. I stay there. We stay trapped in slavery. And Jesus says, no, what I began in you from the beginning, I'm going to complete. I refuse to let you stay there. Every one of us don't realize it, but all of us are Jonah. We think we can run from God. And God's like, serious, dude, I've already got an appointed fish that's going to swallow you up. You're going to sit there. Finally, you're going to go, wow, God, you're smart. I'm going to go, yeah, I know I'm smart. I'm God. And then suddenly you're going to do this thing that I've called you to do anyways. He will not let our sins settle for long. He loves to bring it to the surface. Why? Because he's mean? No, because he understands the very sin has us trapped in slavery and he's offering us freedom. But not only that, the thing that I love about what he's doing here is that failure doesn't require more work. It requires more love. Did you get that? The other day I went to the weight room and as you can tell, I don't really go to the weight room to work out. (laughs) Um, 
but I love actually watching people. And so these two guys, I think they were trying to like max out on the bench, right? And so I'm sitting there, I'm like, I got to watch this. And so the one guy like gets down there, you know, and they're all like any other guy that goes in the gym. They have no, you know, they've shaved their heads, you know, they're tattered up. And it's like, come on, let's go. You know, and everything is intense. So he's underneath the bar and it's like, and the other guy's going, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> Part of me wanted to go up to both of them and go, come here, let me give you a hug, fellas. Come here. You know, then the guy's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, man, we as males are idiots. And so, <laughs> that's not Christianity. Jesus didn't come in and go, Are you with me, Peter? Whoa, Let's go. <laughs> Sorry, a little too much. We don't try to show Jesus we love him by trying to impress him with our deeds. He wants our heart. See, oftentimes what we do is we try to get people doing things. Okay, if you, good, 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 good. Let's just get you to do things. Do, do, do. And Jesus is like, no, are you kidding me? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, there's a huge issue that Paul's dealing with and these people doing things. And he says, look, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Do you get that? If there's not love there, it doesn't matter. In fact, in Matthew 7, Jesus, who's talking to this group of people, said there's going to be people that will stand in front of me one day and they will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Are you kidding me? We were casting out demons left and right. We were doing all these incredible things. And the one thing that Jesus is going to say to them is, well, nice job, but depart from me because I don't know you. It's not about doing things for Jesus. The doing follows the affections in the heart. There was a church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. Jesus is talking to them and he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans with these, with these terrible idolaters which I also hate and you would think, what a great church. Until so you read the next thing. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And that's what Jesus is after here. Peter, do you love me? I think what's also great about this passage, though, is he doesn't just end in Revelation 2 with us understanding that we've failed, but he gives us the answer to how we get out of our failure. Verse 5, he says, Therefore, remember from where you've fallen. See, this lack of love has within it the context of it is, is that you've moved away from the pure affection and just love of Jesus. 
Man, this week in my own heart, I've realized that I have just been going through the motions of Christianity probably over the last two weeks, and it broke my heart. Reading my Bible, praying, sharing my faith, doing all these things, and you would think, man, that Todd, I tell you what. <laughs> Woo! Come on, Todd! You know, just that, but it's that weird way in which we can quickly go through the motions, but as I examine my heart, man, I realized my heart was far from him, possibly. I suddenly remembered back when I first came to know Jesus. I don't know if you remember it. I remember when I've got my first Bible and I'm reading my Bible and I'm like walking up to people, did you ever read this in the Bible before? Shut up, look. Everybody's like, that's the index, dude. Oh, it's still good. I mean, I just was blown away by the scriptures. I couldn't get enough prayer. I couldn't share my faith enough. And I just sat there going, oh my gosh, God, remember therefore from where you've fallen. And I love the next word. It says not only that, but it says to repent. Lack of love for Jesus is sin. Now, I know a lot of people are like, hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm just kind of, you know, going through the ebbs and flows a little bit, not loving like Jesus like I ought to. The Bible calls that sin. And whenever we sin against God, the Bible then calls us to acknowledge it for what it is. And I think a lot of you are trapped in this whole cycle of ebbing and flowing your love with God because you've never called it what it is, sin, and come before God and said, God, I've sinned. I love other things more than I love you. God, forgive me and repent and go the other way. But he doesn't just leave you there. I love that. He says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent. And then he says, do the things that you did at first. Go back to those things. Go back to the basics. Go back to the simple stuff. This idea that all of us in this room, we are descendants from Adam and Eve. They blew it. Sin entered into the world. And God has been on a rescue mission ever since that point through Israel, through then Jesus coming to this world. And when Jesus came and conquered sin and Satan and death, everything turned. And his church now has been unleashed for 2,000 years to share the greatest message of all time. And one day, Jesus Christ is coming back with a shout and the blast of a trumpet and all of us in Christ we're going to enter into an eternity and a new heavens and a new earth to enjoy him not on a cloud playing a harp but actually enjoy him in a physical place praising him forever yeah. sounds cool go back to that he says now I love it though he doesn't just leave him there he wants us to live in this freedom. There's no doubt about it. He wants us to get there. And God does want us to be doers. But he first wants us to be lovers. But be careful of this. And I think this is what's going to be so important in what he's going to do here. Is that I think that some people are going to be then cool. Let's just let go and let God. Let me tell you something. Jesus ain't your boyfriend. He's not there to cheer you on in a weird way. He's calling you now. And he's asking, do you love me? Because he has something in store. Because he even says in the book of John, if you love me, you'll what? Obey my commandments. If you love me, the result is going to be that you will obey me. Now look what he does. In verse 15, 16, and 17, at the very end of it now, we're going to move from our love for Jesus for our love that Jesus has now for or what Jesus has a love for. 
So he calls us to love him. And now he's going to say to Peter, now love what I love the most. And he says, feed my lambs. Verse 16, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Peter, do we got the love thing squared away? Then Peter, go love what I love. Love my church. Even John says this, you will know you love God if you love who? Your brothers and sisters. One of the greatest ways I can always tell how much I love God is by how much I love what God loves, and he loves his people a lot. Peter, later on in 1 Peter 1, says this group of people, they are blood-bought, which is more precious than gold or silver. He saw that. These people are precious to God. But not only that, look at verse 18. Go to the next slide. Not only will I love what Jesus loves, but he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. See, oftentimes what we do is we come into something like this and we go, come on, people, you need to sacrifice more. You need to suffer more. You need to do all these things more. Jesus doesn't start there. He starts and he says, I'm calling you to love me. And when you love me, you will start to then do the things that are over here, the suffering, the sacrificing, all these other things. We can't put them backwards. But the call of it is, is that all of a sudden, what I treasure most, I sacrifice for most. What I treasure most, I suffer for most. What I treasure most, I will begin to work this out. And so in it, he's looking at Peter and saying, don't worry, do you love me? And the outcome is going to be towards the end of his life. Peter actually went to the point where he was crucified somewhat like Jesus. But he said, I can't be crucified like my king. And they crucified him upside down. Why? Because Peter was such a go-getter. No, because it came back to that day, Jesus looking at him and saying, Peter, do you love me? The guy I was telling you about earlier, Eric Little, they asked him when he was in camp, the kids did. They finally got to the point and they said, why were you willing to sacrifice so much for God? His response was, is because I love God passionately in the easy times so that I might be able to love God passionately in the times of trouble. He came back to this idea of just passionately loving God. In fact, at one point in this, Winston Churchill, because Eric Little was such a huge, huge star within the British Empire, he arranged with the Japanese to be able to free Eric Little. Eric is sitting in this camp. He's a guy at that time that was in good health. He looked around and suddenly he realized that one of the wives of the men in there was pregnant and he refused to go. Why? Because not only did he love Jesus, but he loved those whom Jesus also loved. And he looked at that woman and said, no, you're going back to Great Britain. One of the most powerful moments was when they were interviewing Eric Little's daughters. They kind of asked him this question, did it ever hurt that your dad stayed in that camp and never came back to you in, in Canada where they were living at the time? And the girls kind of, one of the girls teared up and she said, no. She goes, I got to meet a lot of the kids that were in that concentration camp. A lot of those kids were there without their parents. And she said, I was at home with my mother and our father had us, but those kids didn't have anybody. And our dad stayed to be a dad to those kids in the concentration camp. And then she quieted down and she goes, they called my dad Uncle Eric. 
because he loved whom Jesus loved. And after all of that, the thing that I love now, Jesus getting all that straight at the end of verse 19, he now looks at Peter and says, follow me. Let's go, Peter. I have your affections. Let's go. Now, just so you don't sit there and go, man, I don't know if I could ever be Peter. Look at verse 20. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That'd be John. He'd been reclining at the table close to him and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? In other words, he's kind of in that weird moment. He kind of gets it, but he kind of doesn't. He goes, well, yeah, but what about John? Don't you love that? It's almost like, I'm going to die? What about him? And I love Jesus' response. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? Peter, why do you care? What does he say? Follow me. So this morning, I'm just looking around at a group of people. We've either fallen, we are fallen, or we're going to fall. I think the big question is not if we're going to fail, but when you fail, how you fail. At the core of it, we're either going to fail in a mediocrity, which please I would say, stop, deal with it, or we're going to fail in a maturity. And so for the last few minutes of this service, I'm just going to give you a few minutes to, first of all, just remember, the last question is, do you love me? It just should be beckoning over all of us, and I would just say to everybody in this room, Jesus Christ is looking at you saying this question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Spend time in the main things. Get back to the main aspects of the gospel. But I would also say this, with sin, repent. Don't sweep it under the rug. Deal with it. And don't just deal with it between you and God. Deal with it publicly. Go to the people that know you and love you. Deal with your sin openly. You will, I promise you, you will stay in mediocrity until in, at that point that you deal with your sin openly. You're going to keep going back into your sin, I promise you, until you deal with it in such a way that your other brothers and sisters in Christ can come around you. But then the other thing is just get back to the relationship. Redo what you did at first. It's why I finish every service I do saying, just enjoy Jesus. So for the next few minutes, I don't know if you need to remember. I don't know if you need to repent. I don't know if you need to do the things you need to do, but I'm just going to give us some quiet just to finish it off. So for the next few minutes, I'll pray here in a little while. But for your own good, I would say this. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Go ahead.